And finally, what fans have been waiting for. An hour and a half of deleted scenes and extended scenes. From Fire Walk With Me, deleted and extended scenes, directed and edited by David Lynch, the holy grail of Twin Peaks fandom. I'm hungry! Welcome to Twin Peaks Rewatch from the Idle Thumbs Network. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. This is the 32nd episode of the show in which we are talking about the missing pieces uh, sort of featurette, I guess, from the Blu-ray set, The Final Mystery. Um, These are a bunch of scenes that were shot for the film Firewalk With Me but not included in the final cut. And then David Lynch essentially went back and re-edited them and strung them together and sort of re-scored them into kind of a weird pseudo-film. It, it's an odd experience. Yeah, by the as you watch it, it feels it feels like a weird shadow episode of Twin Peaks almost. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the least essential episodes of Twin Peaks ever made. Oh, yeah, I, I yeah, think definitely. Um, and after we we're gonna talk about this a little bit. We're not gonna go into a we're not gonna talk about it as in depth as we probably would with a typical episode, just because we know these are difficult to see. Uh, they've been screened a couple times by David Lynch in it in a theater and they're available on the Blu-ray set, but we know not everyone has that. So we're not going to, we're going to try not to belabor it too much. And then after that, we're going to um, go delve into reader mail. that has been sent in about the film Firewalk with me that we discussed last week, but that there's been an absolutely incredible, before we even get anything else, I want to say that there's been just an incredible, truly, truly great forum discussion about Firewalk with me on the forums. If you go to twin peaks, rewatch.com, Click the forums link and go to the Twin Peaks Rewatch forum. The Firewalk With Me thread there is so good. There's so much great discussion about the meaning of the film, interpretation of the lore as it relates to like interesting psychological and moral questions, um, just choices Lynch made in, in yeah, directing it. Interesting behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah, great behind-the-scenes stuff. It's so, it's so great. It's one of my favorite um, forum threads in our entire, our entire collection of forums. It's so good. So thanks to the, the uh, Twin Peaks Rewatch community, I guess, for, um, being so great there anyway. Yeah. So I know, I mean, all of this stuff was shot and a lot of it ended up in the script of firewalk with me, but then it seems like Lynch went through a pretty extreme editing phase because I know, I remember, I actually know from the forum thread that when firewalk with me was first screened at like fan preview screenings, people actually were shown a three and a half hour cut of the film, which Mm -hmm. I imagine includes all this stuff because firewalk with me the theatrical release and the the sort of definitive edition of that film is over two hours. And then this is 90 minutes of content. Yeah. So at some point Lynch obviously, and his editor went and just cut the hell out of this film to make it really, really, really focused. And, uh, the, which is crazy because it's still compared to most movies. It still has that odd structure of feeling like, yes, you know, it's got so much there. watching, watching what they excised from the film, Makes you appreciate, I think, what is in the film even more. I, I agree. I definitely agree. Um, I don't know. The, how- the finished film is much is sort of less indulgent, and I, they're they're well. Okay, actually, you know what? The biggest thing that I I think really changes the character of the film fundamentally um, from what it clearly would have been is that it becomes much less of a typical Twin Peaks episode. In other words, in the missing pieces, you get. You know, you get Ed and Norma and you get a lot more Bobby and you get a lot, you know, you get all, all these other uh, Shelly. Like Andy and, and Lucy. Andy and Lucy. You get all these scenes of all these characters who are Twin Peaks mainstays. Um, but in the film, it really, the the sort of Twin Peaks part of the film, that's really Laura's movie. It's really Laura's yes. movie and Leland's movie above all else. And, and they, and there's actually relatively little stuff that's cut out. There's, there's. There is Bob is definitely in the missing pieces, but like there's as much, you know, Bobby cut out of the missing pieces as there is Bob. Yes. You know, that's it's the, uh, the, the thing that I was actually struck by in the missing pieces. And it was the, the scenes that were the most interesting for me to watch were all of the scenes involving Laura, Sarah and Leland Palmer mm. that were left on the cutting room floor because there is an additional. I couldn't tell if it was an additional scene or an alternate scene of the family sitting down to dinner and Leland is practicing. I think his, that was additional. And Leland's practicing his Norwegian, and he yeah. gets the whole family to introduce themselves. And it's obviously to tie into the Norwegians coming at mm-hmm. the beginning of the of the film. But also, it was way more of the sort of 
goofy, bombastic Leland from the show. And like he keeps right. talking about his job with Ben Horn and his family is just like laughing together. And all almost all of the stuff that was there's another scene where Leland is talking about what's going on at, at work, and there's uh some scenes with Laura and her mom, and all of those scenes feel so much more like they familial. They, they, yeah, and they and they broaden mm-hmm. the the scope of the of the family relationships to feel way more in line with what you see in Twin Peaks. Yeah, and none of that stuff was included. Only the intense stuff was left in the film. Right, and that like had all these things been left in the film. I guess it probably would have felt less like an alternate universe in Twin Peaks. Right. But at the same time, Lynch's decision to cut all of them, you understand why it happened, and it makes it makes so much sense. But like it that. The feeling when you watch Firewalk with me of, oh, I am just seeing like this laser focused, like burning hot mm-hmm. look at one tiny facet of of the show that's then like just you're just marinating in mm-hmm. is driven home by by the fact that they even shot stuff that had the sort of tonal breadth of 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 Twin Peaks and just even of that family's relationship and then just right. killed it. Yeah, to the extent that yeah, to the extent that you. Essentially, with the film Firewalk with Me, and, and if you've just if you've not seen the, the missing pieces, you basically have to infer that the Palmers were once something like a happy family, and you kind of can. I mean, I, you know, between the material in the show and sort of the way Leland acts and the before you know the revelation, and then um, the the sort of building blocks that are there, you can kind of pick pick up on that. But it's shocking how much it's just how much any direct evidence is gone. Um, and I don't know, I. Do, why do you say you think it's obvious why he took that out? Is it just because of the the focus issue? I just don't think the movie needs those things to be about the things that it's about. Yeah, I think like you just don't need any of those I scenes. Guess, I guess you're right in that you can't just throw one of those scenes in. Otherwise, right. it's just because yeah, it's a weird they, island. They have you know? that whole arc, the like mini arc of Laura's mom talking about Laura's smoking, where um, <clears throat> she says you you don't have to quit if you don't start or whatever. She says mm-hmm. then. Laura smokes throughout the entire movie and the story well, that, with, her, re- with her sweater being well, taken. Laura, Laura's mother saying, you'll never be a smoker if you don't start, really reminded me of the, the log lady, I guess, saying, once a fire starts, you can't put it out. Mm-hmm. That's a theme that people that's, put on Laura frequently. That's true. Yeah. Um, but just on the on the sort of familiar side, like yeah. familial mm-hmm. side, yeah. uh, Laura and her mom have these little beats that keep coming back to about Laura wearing her mom's clothes and mm-hmm. the cigarettes mm-hmm. and the various dinner scenes and all of them are gone and they're like, they're nice to see as sort of setting the bedrock and they're nice to see for me. Like this is a giant TV episode thing, but I think Lynch made the correct choice to not bother showing any of those things because you, from the, t- just from tiny little beats throughout the, the story, you get, you get one version of each of those moments mm-hmm. sort of folded into other scenes in the, in the movie that he edited. Yeah. Um, watching the missing pieces was interesting to me having never seen them because they are sort of storied among Twin Peaks fandom as mm. sort of, you know, they're the things you never got to see that right. you know that Lynch filmed. Yeah. But seeing them, I almost, like, I'm, I'm glad that they exist just so that people can scratch the itch, but it is almost right. like, it's good that they're there just so that you can stop yeah. being worried about them. It's true. Because they're they're effectively nothing, for mm-hmm. me at least. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the probably the stuff that, that, that sort of that, you know, like part of the fan community would be most interested in would be the additional things in the red room, you know, the man from the other place and so on. And, and those, there's not even all that much of that, but, no, there's, but there's some, the, and, the most you know, sort of, I guess, do you want to talk about sort of the most notable lore sure. scenes, yeah, I guess, because it. we can like, because the, the thing that I do kind of wish had been either completely excised or untangled correctly was the stuff with David Bowie and the mm. stuff above mm-hmm. the convenience store, which is the sort of yeah. ratty old, uh, old boarded up room that has all of the sort of red room black lodge people in them because lynch it seems like just made that almost an incoherent thing on purpose in the film where bowie is running in and everyone's screaming at each other right. and it's cross-cutting the characters saying electricity and garmin bozia or whatever mm-hmm. but in the missing pieces it and from what we'd heard about previous edits of this film those scenes were originally completely separate scenes and it was very explicitly just a scene about an agent who checks into a hotel somewhere, then just blips into the FBI headquarters, tries to be debriefed, and then... Right. Like, I still... At this point, I agree with you that I don't think that scene has any business being in, in the movie. I don't like I don't care if it's there or not. But yeah. I did... I did like seeing it 
in and of itself, but I the thing that the thing that I wish had actually been in the film if they kept what they had kept was we see the shot of David Bowie actually reappearing somewhere with that weird painful thing with right. the sparks yeah, and yeah, smoke yeah. that appear mm-hmm. on the wall. Um, I kind of wish that had shown up, but but whatever. It just to sort of kind of close the loop a little. Yeah, bit? at yeah. least at least yeah, yeah. We we see in the missing pieces what happens to Bowie's character, and he just appears in a hotel somewhere and confuses mm-hmm. the hell out of people. Yeah. Um, the other sort of most notable thing that appears in the missing pieces, and this is actually a thing that I don't know what they're going to do with when it comes to Twin Peaks 2016, is it seems like Firewalk With Me was originally intended to end with a, a title card that says months later, and we see Annie being taken to the hospital after she comes out of the Black Lodge at the end of the TV show. Mm. Um, and we see Cooper banging his head against the mirror saying, how's Annie? And then there's like one extra... It's the most horrible tease if you are a fan who is expecting to hear like, oh, I hear Firewalk With Me has content that comes in after season two because it's literally Cooper, like he, he bangs his head against the mirror and he mm-hmm. says that like he enjoyed the feeling of it or something. I don't remember his exact quote. I should look it up. No, I don't remember. I don't even remember that line. I just, he, he said it struck me as funny here. Oh, it struck, it struck him as funny. That's yeah, all that well, he says. The thing that was notable about that, I think, is at least how it came off to me, is that is that Cooper, you know, he smashes his head against the mirror. He says, how's Annie? How's Annie? And then when when he hears uh, Hayward and Truman outside being like, hey, you okay, Coop, or whatever, uh, he sort of poses as though he had slipped and hit his head. Right. And, fall, and like he, he's – that feels like Cooper or the or the Bob Cooper or the doppelganger Cooper, whatever that, whatever that is going on, trying to like very consciously and knowingly – Like put a little veneer like, over it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so that, that made that even more sinister in yep. a way. Yeah. Uh, but then it ends. It ends in a way that really cheesed it out for me and bothered what, me. What the? I haven't brushed my teeth. Yeah, yet. they said yeah. go back to bed. He said, "Well, I haven't brushed my teeth yet." Yeah, like, that was odd. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it it again though. Like I know why they wanted to like why you'd want to put that in the movie is because people want to feel like oh Twin Peaks will continue and you get this sort of feeling of the, this movie then could sort of bookend the entire run of the show and you have that stuff. But again. Taking it out feels probably really annoying to fans, but that scene feels like it's literally treading over the same ground as the last minutes in the show. Yeah, like you yeah, don't actually – nothing new has been learned from it. Yeah, it's it. true. It um, drills down into it slightly, but it's, it's it really is the same scene. The thing actually. that I did like that we were all, we are shown Annie being taken into the hospital on a stretcher and she says the same lines that she says to Laura in her dream where she says, my name is Annie. I've been with right. uh, Dale and Laura. Mm-hmm. The good Dale is stuck in the lodge. She mm-hmm. just is – um sort of incoherently saying that to a nurse in the hospital uh, in a way that I thought was really good. Yeah. Like that, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. And yeah. again, that scene could just be gone. No, it's funny. From the entirety of Twin Peaks, but a lot of these, certainly not all these scenes, some of these scenes are just totally, are just plot lines that didn't make it in the movie at all. But, but a lot of the scenes are kind of recapitulation of things that we essentially see in the movie anyway. Um, you know, with the, like there was a bunch of stuff about uh, the angels, you know, and Laura, uh, what was it exactly? Um, oh yeah, that was a, that weird scene where Dr. Hayward, um, Laura is over at his house and, um, Donna has this like, pres- you know, medicine prescription paper and she gives it to her dad who's a doctor and he says, this isn't a prescription. It's a secret message for Laura. The angels will, will return. And when you see the one that's meant to help you, you will weep with joy. Um, and that that was really odd coming out of Hayward's mouth because he is one of the characters who is least kind of seems to interact least with all of the The sort of mythology stuff in the show. Um, But that, that was essentially thematically stuff that we already get in the movie anyway. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's like a double, it's like we've already sort of gotten essentially that kind of stuff delivered to Laura in the film. You don't really, I don't really feel like you necessarily need it from Hayward again, but the anything that you mentioned is kind of interesting in that it, when she's just kind of rambling it to just whoever, it almost kind of reinforces her weird catatonic state, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a way that I think that I think is kind of good. Yeah, I I like that, but there would be no way to keep that scene if you didn't keep the Cooper scene, mm-hmm. unless you just edited it into the film deliberately, incoherently. Right. Um, the other sort of big arcs that the that the missing pieces touch on seem like they're either straight up recapitulations or re revisitings of arcs from the TV show that almost feel like they're just put in to be warm and comfortable for me where like just all the other characters like yeah like Uh Ed, Norma, Nadine have their sort of love triangle gets a mention but it's you know 
it's it's literally the exact same things we've seen before. It's true. Although I get, I mean, again, I, I suppose this is just me. But <laughs> you like those characters a million the times. Most. I love Norma the most. I just really, I think the way that she plays her kind of the the overlapping of sort of um, happiness and and frustration and grief. Not gr- I mean, not grief, but like sadness. You know, the the way she gets like a little moment of happiness, but it's like papered on top of a layer of frustration and sadness. I think, I just think she does with more subtlety than pretty much any other, yes. any other actor on this whole show. And, and, and like, it was almost more, it was sort of impressively intense here because this is actually before any, <laughs> obviously any of what happens in the actual TV show where she and Ed start to have this like flicker of hope about their relationship. So this is really, you get the sense when she's like at her lowest, um, and uh, and man, it's it's she sells it really well. Yes, that is that is totally. I'm not true. saying that means it should have been in the movie, I right? Just, but I the, just it seems like it seems like be sitting there watching this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems like that stuff very similarly to like Andy and Lucy's interactions or the times that we see the, any yeah. of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department was almost done to get the cast in the room for the film to give these people a scene yeah, as these I'm characters. Sure. Yeah, you know, um, and like the other sort of big arc that was excised from the film plot wise is the story of the drug deal and the cocaine it seems like because mm-hmm. there's more stuff with bobby and mike mm-hmm. and laura and jacques renault about how they take a ten thousand dollar payment and you explicitly see laura getting the money from bobby yeah. that he complains about in the show yeah. you see that the cocaine was actually that, baby know. powder or whatever and like yeah. all or baby or baby laxatives baby or laxative. something yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's all stuff that we know but yeah, we you basically just, get the point of that without there's it seems like there's a solid 20 minutes of of airtime in the mm-hmm. in the deleted scene set up to that stuff so there are two other things that we haven't touched on at all that mm-hmm. i think we should talk about um one of which is uh, the explicit connection of cooper to this case by way of his sort of forensic catch up with Stanley. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so we, we actually see Cooper, you know, I guess taking over the Teresa Banks case and seeing the letter under the fingernail for the first time. Um, uh, which, you know, again, like we, we kind of get that. We Even that's know implied because that you see already. Cooper look at the trailer park and ask about the, the Chalfont family. Yeah, true. And he sees the spot where just the car is gone and there's just a little oil patch and a little mm-hmm. crinkle of dirt. Like you never explicitly see yeah, Cooper that's true. You're right. getting in the investigation. So again, like I appreciated that they shot the scene just to see. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, also last week we said, or I hypothesized that Cooper and Sam would be an interesting pair. But um, someone, I think it's one of the guys who actually hosts the Twin Peaks podcast, another Twin Peaks podcast out there um, mentioned that is his name Sam Stanley. I think yeah. mm-hmm. he's explicitly mentioned by Cooper, but he's name dropped by Cooper in season one when Albert is first called in. When he says send these to Albert, don't send them to Sam. <laughs> um, like Cooper just implies that Sam is sort of weird or obsessive or will screw it up, so you should only involve Albert and not Sam. Right. Um, which I totally don't remember at all, but I'm glad that that character is mentioned for half a second and then yeah, is no, turned that's, into that's this weird bumbling yeah, yeah. Kiefer Sutherland character mm-hmm, who Cooper mm-hmm. apparently just doesn't really get along with. Right. Yeah, I like the I like the sort of Im- suggestion there that Cooper, despite, I mean, you get the sense in a way that some I still think, even though I think the the you know the person you're talking about on the forums might still disagree with me on this, um, I still think that Cooper would probably get along more easily with Sam than with Albert. But I like that give that even with that, which, you know, is a matter of opinion. This is what I think. Doesn't no one else has to think that um, I still like that. Um, he respects Albert's skills so much that that's not even relevant. Like that's totally, un, totally irrelevant. Right. Cooper, the, uh, Cooper likes that Albert is a weird, cool professional. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. He trusts him to do his job. Even if they obviously, Albert clearly gives him a lot of shit all the time. Um, and then the other thing that uh, that I think is worth, is worth talking about is just all the stuff that opens the missing pieces, which is just extended scenes with Agent Desmond interacting with with the sheriff's department. The sheriff's basically? department, yeah. It just the Deer makes, Meadow sheriffs, yeah. Yeah, it just makes the whole it makes that town even more weird and sinister than it is already portrayed to be in the film, which is probably why this stuff was taken out. It's unnecessary and it gets a little over the top. But there's like there's you know the additional scene at the diner with the the back room with the flickering light that's just kind of weird and unsettling and then there's that incredibly long fight scene between Desmond and the sheriff where the sheriff like bends the sheriff a piece bends of rebar the, bends the rebar and, the way that he did in that cheesy local interest yeah, story yeah and then Desmond kicks the shit out of him and then also bends the bends rebar. A piece of rebar in his face yeah 
which just like I, I'm glad that stuff wasn't in the movie. It yes. was it was pretty silly. And then in the back in the entire the entire time in the background, you have the sort of weird uh, bizarro Andy and Lucy from the sheriff's department. Then you have Sam Stanley and who I guess is the FBI. Um, like corpse retrieval guy or whatever. Yeah. Just they're all just like watching, just watching yep. and passively, essentially. Um, and it's just a weird scene, and I don't. It doesn't. I don't know. It's uh, kind of funny, I guess, but that's. But I, it's just weird. The scene actually immediately after that in the missing pieces is, in my opinion, the worst scene filmed for Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, and the scene that I am the most glad is gone, and the scene that I wish had never even been in the missing pieces, which is what, which is in the FBI Philadelphia office. We see Cooper talking through a doorway. To what is Diane? Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, and he's saying like, "Nice dress, Diane, looking good," like or whatever. He's just saying all these things to Diane, like, "Oh, yeah, so you've hidden something in your office. Oh, you moved the clock a foot to the left." Like he's just yeah. saying all these things to Diane, and then, and then he says something like, "And now you must clean the coffee cups and do, right. do all, like." It's just like, oh, it's it's the it's the scene that is the the worst instincts of now we're making a feature film that's going to play to our fans of right. like wouldn't it be great if in the movie Cooper actually sees Diane but we don't show the audience Diane yeah, so she still, still can't hear her voice so she's yes yeah. oh man it just ends up creating a, a incredibly artificial scene like that scene has no you can't grab onto anything in it because it's so contrived as you say for that exact purpose yeah that you doesn't just stand on its own as that scene, scene should just all. never be made or you have a great concept for who diane is as a character and introduce her into the sh- into the series right. you do That's one fun. of those two things yes. you don't show it or yeah. you explicitly make the choice don't be cheeky like that it's yeah. so bad no, I totally oh agree. man I totally it's so agree. bad it still would have been like cute to, uh, to have diane you st- it still would have been like a little bit cutesy to have diane in there as a character and reveal her but at least you're doing something this was just the teasiest lame thing i totally agree with you it was garbage yeah oh man i was just i was actually just sad the rest of this stuff like the missing pieces on the whole to me is so inessential that i feel like we've talked about it more than it needs to be talked about let's move on um it just it has had this aura of mystery around it for being lost but it just it was all like any deleted scene like this most (laughs) of the time it's it's lost for a reason like that stuff everything in them you already know or you're just seeing them to sort or of you have don't a, need to know. Yeah, and like their value is lost now more than ever before. Now that the pilot through the entirety of, of the show is available at filmic quality, you don't need to see these characters just shot on film larger than life doing their same old things yeah, you've seen no, before right because that. you can just see them at a moment's notice. Like mm-hmm. you know, Norman yep. Ed, great, watch their whole arc yeah. at 35 millimeter film quality on the Blu-ray. So here, here's a totally. Um sort of academic question that will that won't matter because it'll be answered definitively in a year anyway but just for the sake of it do you think that because Lynch has kind of played up the importance of this stuff and has screened it himself and has you know did go to all this trouble to like rescore it and include it in this weird pseudo feature way do you think that he intends this stuff to be kind of canonical in the world of Twin Peaks do you think he intends to like sort of be accountable to this material in the third season of Twin Peaks? I don't know. And like, I was asking myself that the entire time that I was watching this. And the answer that I kept coming up with was, man, fortunately it's irrelevant for most of it, whether or not he actually holds true to this stuff, you know? Um, but irrelevant in what sense? If this stuff is held to as canon or is ignored, I don't think it's going to have a major impact because oh, okay. the content yeah. are, is so inessential. Right. The only places that that came into play were just like, little details that were added about the 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 presence of where the ring is and where it's not right. that yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. matters that's true like we see at the end very explicitly that annie is now wearing the ring in the yeah. hospital mm-hmm. um does that matter if we've already seen that in fire walk with me uh or not when yeah. when its inclusion shows up in twin peaks 2016 i don't think it's actually going to matter either way because it as a viewer it will either be a thing that the story has jumped over or it will be a reference to a deleted scene that you saw. So I think that we're probably going to it's probably yep. going to be okay either way. Yeah. Um I think you're right. But uh yeah. all right, so on that let's let's move on to the next section. We're going to I guess reintroduce our old spoiler music for the purpose of uh dividing this podcast into the email section because I want to queue up some some emails. Um But now that we've all watched the complete run of Twin Peaks and Fire Walk with me, you can listen past the spoiler music and into <laughs> the true. into the next section. <laughs> so only listen to the following uh contents if you have watched the entire run of the show as well as the film. Um it doesn't matter if you saw the deleted scenes. True. See you in a minute right. for the spo- <laughs> for the spoiler section. That's spoilers <laughs> for the reader mail. 
All right. Email time. Yeah. So um, I'm going to start off with an email from Joel Baco, who posts on the forums as Lost in the Movies and has been one of the, uh, if not the most uh, kind of prolific um, uh, poster throughout the run of, of our, our podcast. And I know that has been involved in other Twin Peaks communities online and has written a lot about the show and, and other movies and shows. He does a YouTube series about Twin Peaks as well, mm-hmm. I think. So uh, he writes... Chris and Jake, first off, thanks for a great podcast. It was a pleasure not just to follow along with your insightful and often hilarious observations, but to participate in the community you created on the forums. Um, I look forward to your take on the forthcoming new series, uh, etc. In this email, I want to hone in on the confusing and overwhelming train car sequence and mix observations with my own interpretation. It took me a long time to warm to this climax. Initially, it just seemed like overkill, pardon the expression. I think it now may be the key sequence, not just in Twin Peaks, but all of Lynch's work. Before digging deeper, I want to observe the scene is not really about Laura's death. Her actual murder takes up less than a minute of this three-and-a-half-minute sequence, and most of that is devoted to capturing her final breaths rather than Leland's treatment of her. The grisly detail offered in the show, uh, details offered in the show, the cuts, the rape, the mental and physical torture, are thankfully left to our imagination. But if the sequence is not really about Laura, Laura's death, what's it about? Let's break it down. First, we see Leland circling Laura and Renette, who are tied up in the middle of the train car. Through the film, Renette has served as a reminder of Laura's corrupted size. Uh, side. <laughs> In the pink room in Teresa's motel and Jock's cabin, she's there whenever Laura descends into sexual deprivation and communal drug use. She serves this purpose for Leland, too. Think how traumatized Leland, on his way to an orgy in a motel room, sees Laura practicing prostitution. She's seated right next to Ronette in that shot, and later Leland's mind replaces the image of Laura and Donna on the couch with Laura and Ronette on the bed. He can't escape from this image of his sexualized daughter and the knowledge that he's the one who pushed her in this direction. As Leland circles Laura, we see him and Bob interspersed with flashes of the flashlight. In the climax, Lynch presents the two facets of her torment, the individual father-daughter abuse of Leland and the more cosmic metaphysical struggle with evil, which Bob represents. Laura and Leland's struggles are individual and universal. Separate from Ronette, Laura asks Leland if he's going to kill her. He doesn't answer. He probably doesn't have a plan at this point, but it's asking, acting out of rage. Philip Gerard's running through the woods, presumably possessed by Mike, hoping to counter Bob somehow. We don't know how. In a really crucial passage of Laura's trial, Leland places a mirror under her face and she sees Bob's reflection replace her own. Meanwhile, Renette is praying. What are the words of her prayer? Um, she addresses God as father in the usual tradition. The irony of the phrase in this context is obvious, however. She's pl- praying to an abstract father while Laura is being tormented by her actual father. Uh, Renette pleads, please see me at the moment when Laura's face dissolves into Bob. The inadequacy of Renette's words are being harshly juxtaposed with Laura's torment. Even when Renette's attempts at redemption come up short. She's blaming herself and hoping for rescue from the same forces that have placed her where she is. Um... Leland confronts Laura with the torn out pages of her diary, a, uh, a callback to the beginning of Laura and Leland's arc in the movie. We learn what Leland found so troubling about these pages because he moans, I always thought you knew it was me. This is one of the most important lines in the film. On the forum and elsewhere, several viewers have observed that it's possible for Leland to be unconscious of his evil actions. This time more than any other in Twin Peaks makes that interpretation untenable. It underscores everything suggested by every Leland scene. His coping mechanism for abusing his daughter has probably been the assumption that she knew what was going on and may have been even a willing participant. It was their dirty little secret. Now Leland is forced to confront what should have been obvious all along. He's a rapist and everything Laura has been going through is his fault. This realization began a year earlier when he stumbled across Laura in Teresa's hotel room. You can only deny the truth so long. Renette says look at me as Laura turns away and glances down at herself in the off-screen mirror. Laura turns her head in the other direction as Bob leans and whispers, I never knew you knew it was me and I want you. It seems her glance in the mirror triggered Bob's appearance. Supernatural figures do not just flash in from either in this film. They appear in response to the human character's emotional states. Bob, for Laura, represents her own self-blame, her capacity for evil, the side of her which has been groomed to enjoy her abuse. With Leland on her left and Bob on her right, she's confronted by two aspects of the situation, the terrible betrayer of the man she trusted above all others, and the understanding that she too contains the capacity for evil. Bob's statement also reminds us that the web of good and evil is much bigger than just the palmer. Laura is gifted because she can see Bob. He tries to use this, even though he didn't realize it at first, he tries to use this to his his advantage by openly openly taunting her, but in fact her ability to see the big, big picture offers the possibility of escape. For the duration of the passage, we will no longer see Leland, Bob, or Mike because they don't matter. Leland has established his responsibility. Bob has staked his claim. Mike is too far away to intervene. Only two people in the train car determine Laura's fate. Laura, who until now has been consumed by Leland, Bob, and her own reflection, and Renette, who has continued to whimper, but uh, sincere but unanswered prayers in her own corner. Renette says, I'm so dirty, reflecting Laura's own feelings as Bob confronts her. We switch to a surprising and revealing angle over Laura's head with the mirror underneath her face. 
She's looking straight ahead over the mirror instead of at it. She's staring at Renette as the next few cuts will make clear. Renette says something. I think I'm not ready, though. It could be. I'm sorry. Um, we see Laura, and she's crying as she watches her friend. For the first time in the entire sequence, Laura's taken outside of herself, moved by compassion. Laura's face is lit, like most everything in the scene, by a flashlight. Renette definitely now says, I'm sorry. Back to Laura as the music approaches crescendo. Her expression is astonished, and she's, mo- she's no longer lit by a flashlight, but by an intermittent floodlight. Looks like the same effect we saw in the pink room. Remember what happens next? She leaps to her feet in the pink room, screaming for her friend, and pushes the man off Donna. In the train car, Laura's hands are tied, so she can't physically save Renette, but her desire is the same, and I would submit the same event is occurring, Laura saving a friend. Except this time it occurs in the spiritual and subconscious realm rather than the physical. I believe Laura's compassion, not Renette's self-hatred, is what invites the angel into the train car. Given Renette's representation as Laura's corrupt side, this moment suggests Laura is finally feeling compassion for her own fallen nature as well. Her, her expressions convey interpersonal generosity and self-forgiveness. The sun cuts out. We see an angel with long blonde hair like Laura's, not the same angel who disappeared from Laura's portrait with short curly hair. In close-up, we pan from the angel's face to an astonished Renette. Observe this is the first camera movement in the scene since the shot of Mike running through the woods. We've been getting quick cutting, but now the lack of sound, camera movement, close lens, and extended duration of the shot give a meditative mood, a complete startling break. Cut to the previous angle of Laura, uh, with the same bright, flickering light cast over her. She's faintly smiling, and her expression turns to a kind of awe. Renette pulls her hand from behind her back and stares in shock. The ropes connecting her two tight hands have been severed, obviously because of the angel's appearance. We cut outside. Philip has arrived. The door is closed. He can't open it, so he bangs and shouts, let me in. Renette is jolted from her shock by this noise, and she turns to open the door while hesitantly looking back in Laura's direction. Philip helps, dragging the sliding door, working together. It's as though the inner and outer forces surrounding Laura are finally working together to offer a way out. In one of the most ambiguous shots of the sequence, Laura looks to her left where Leland is standing. He moves off screen. Is he expressing despair at her, at her friend's fate, hatred of Leland and Bob, or has Laura's dark side temporarily gained the upper hand again? I'm not sure. Leland catches Renette in the doorway and hits her several times. Leland dumps Renette out the door, and the camera follows her down while Philip moves toward the opening. Leland is beaten or senseless, but if we've seen the series, we know Renette will survive, and her survival probably resulted from this escape. Had she remained tied up, tied up, Laura would, Leland, or worse, Laura, if Bob had managed to win her over, would probably have killed her as a witness. We realize the angel and perhaps Laura did save Renette's life. There's a shot of the ring rolling onto the floor. A quick word on the ring. It was never supposed to be in this scene. Neither was the angel. In the shooting script, as written, Renette escaped the train car by kicking the door open. Philip just stood at the door and didn't throw Laura anything, and Laura resisted Bob by verbally demanding that he kill her. This is worth reiterating. There were no a- angels in the screenplay. Not in the picture on Laura's wall, not in the train car, not in her conversation with Donna, and not in the red room. The movie was supposed to end with the melancholy Laura sitting on Cooper's lap, stranded in limbo. The angels were incorporated only during the production, after Cheryl Lee and Phoebe Augustine, who plays Renette, talked to Lynch about the screenplay's bleak outcome and the need for hope. Hmm. Leland closes the door and turns away, but it's too late because the ring is already inside, presumably because Philip threw it in there. Throughout the film, indeed Lynch's work in general, open doors signify psychological and spiritual freedom, while characters who are oppressed are trapped behind closed doors. Laura's vision and first exposure to the ring is facilitated by the picture of the open door on her wall. Her father makes a point of closing her door to shut her in like a princess locked in her tower. Uh, Remember a few episodes ago in a bit that came off as goofy Laura and Major Briggs proclaimed, Fear and Love Open the Door. In this movie, fear closes doors and love opens them. In the montage, Leland screams no, Laura places the ring on her finger, Leland screams don't make me do this, and Laura is killed. Her death is presented as a byproduct of her decision, Bob's chosen response rather than Laura's desired outcome. Trace the cause and effect. Bob cannot possess Laura, and Leland cannot control her only because she takes the ring. Laura takes the ring only because Mike throws it through the open door. The door is opened only because Renat's hands are untied, and Renat's hands are untied by the angel's appearance. If we believe Laura's concern for Renat is what caused the angel's appearance, then clearly her compassion is what ultimately saved Laura from evil. A final note. The film Inland Empire, Lynch's last movie to date, also features a blonde woman being forced to confront her own shadow self before rescuing a brunette from an enclosed space, a hotel room rather than a train car. In a blinding light, the blonde embraces the brunette before disappearing and allows her to leave through an open door that was previously closed. This certainly looks like a visual callback to Firewalk With Me, but the blonde character in Inland Empire is an actress, and the brunette probably represents the character being played by this actress in a film within a film. By all accounts, Cheryl Lee went through hell to get Laura on screen, especially in the train car sequence, the last scene shot. Crew members feared she was suffering a nervous breakdown. The cinematographer reported he'd never witnessed an actor so devoted to her craft, and Lee herself was haunted for years by the character's presence. In a diary entry written shortly after the production wrapped, publishing many, published many years later, Lee wrote directly to Laura Palmer. 
walking back to my into my empty hotel room by myself each day, left to deal with the fragmented pieces of my own life, your loneliness would still fill my room. My prayer is that you are now somewhere where you are truly loved and at peaceful rest. In a way, the angel at the end of the film is not only Cooper's present to Laura, it is David Lynch's present to Cheryl Lee. God knows she earned it. Joel. That's a good email. Man, that yeah, guy. That's intense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that is probably the longest email we have, so these other ones won't be quite so intense. Um, <clears throat> Matt Humphrey, uh, who does the uh, Firewalk, I'm sorry, the Twin Peaks podcast, which you mentioned, Jake, mm-hmm. uh, writes in some answers to questions. I'm not going to read all of these because some of them we've already talked about, including having talked about them from him posting them on the forums. But yes. uh, yeah, he writes, the shooting locations are in the same towns as the pilot, but they feel different because the film was shot in the summer. Everything is much sunnier and more dry than when the pilot was filmed in late winter and early spring. Many of the scenes are shot in new locations that weren't used in the pilot, but they're all still located in the same general area of the Snoqualmie Valley. The Palmer House interior is the same as in the series, but the exterior has changed for the film. The exterior used in the series was actually a completely different house than the interior. Now in the movie, the same is used for interior and exterior. That makes sense to me, because it really did feel like the exterior was a different place. Yeah. Um... He says that he believes Desmond did purposely make Sam spill his coffee, which I think is probably correct. Um, the Roadhouse was probably the other location with the neon sign you were thinking of. The iconic shots of the Roadhouse's neon sign reflected in a puddle in the parking lot. Um, he talks about the uh, David Lynch stuff in The Missing Pieces, which we talked about. Uh, he says, what you, talk, what you said about the Black Lodge and its effect on time in a person's life seemed to be dead on. The film takes place between, before Coop had gone to Twin Peaks, but the first time you see him, you can faintly hear some Black Lodge music. Philip Jeffries points to him and asks, who do you think that is there? Presumably in reference to his future possession by Bob. Laura has a dream about Annie who tells her about Coop being trapped in the Black Lodge. And of course at the end when Laura ends up in the Red Room, Coop is already there waiting to usher into what we can assume is the White Lodge. Um, the grandmother and grandson are the Tremonts, not whatever name you were saying. They are both. They are both, yeah. The Tremonts and the Chalfonts are used respectively in the I think series they're, they're the, the Tremonts in the, in the TV series because that's the name of the people who Donna was expecting to find in that house and they're yeah. the Chalfonts in this because those are the people who used to yeah. rent the trailer park so yep. uh-huh. they always are just the name of the previous tenant of their yeah. space it um, seems like at least yep uh, he talks about that train car scene as well which I'm going to I'm going to alight over here just because we just talked so much about it uh, let's see uh, he says, in the final episode, a lot of people think Cooper injured his head on the mirror so he would be taken to the hospital where Annie is. This would give Bob a chance to kill Annie before she wakes up and has a chance to tell anyone the real Coop is still in the lodge. Indeed, in the missing pieces, Annie is seen wearing the ring in the hospital, presumably marked for death until a nurse steals it from her. Not sure where that would have gone. I guess Coop would end up killing the nurse. Also, this I like, the ring seems to be made of the same material as the table that the man from another place uh, runs his hands over while saying, this is the Formica table. There's even a chunk of the table missing, presumably the piece the ring is made from. Uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I thought, that was, I, I, I thought that was interesting too. With the way you guys enjoyed the movie, I really think you should read The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. The themes are extremely similar to Firewalk With Me. I usually suggest people read it before the movie to help prep for the subject matter and shift in tone. But since you're already fans of the movie, I think you'll like the book a lot. I got my Twin Peaks podcast co-host to read it before watching, and they said it really helped them more fully understand the character of Laurie and Laura and how dark the world of the movie is. Maybe you can do a bonus show on it. Other, thing you, other things you could check out are you can listen to Cooper's audio tapes and you could read Cooper's autobiography. These two things are interesting, but not necessary, in my opinion, the way Laura's diary is. Uh, that's all for now. Matt Humphrey, host of the Twin Peaks podcast. I've, I've, heard, seen a, I've seen a few other people recommend that diary. Yeah, I've, I've heard of all the sort of ancillary material that came out around Twin Peaks that the diary of Laura, Laura Palmer is the most, like, if any of them is essential reading, mm-hmm. that's the closest to that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Um, <clears throat> I've got a couple things from the forums that just sort of not theories or discussion about stuff, but some backstory things. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing someone posted very early on was about the, what is referred to as the pink room scene, which is the, that, the sort of gross back room bar yeah, right. that Laura and Donna go mm-hmm. to when they pick up those two guys and Jacques mm-hmm. is there. Um, that scene always always interested me in part because it was inaudible and subtitled and it always felt like a weird echo of the Red Room yeah. scenes. But yeah, I definitely. guess um, 
I was told there's a person in the thread who was offering advice saying, if you see scenes that are impenetrable and don't have subtitles, do not turn subtitles on because that's not how they were intended. Oh, but that is not actually true. Ah. And it's that's because Lynch flip-flopped on whether or not to subtitle those to the point that it was too late and European releases had prints struck without subtitles. And then he was like, shit, no, I actually do want them. So um, the oh, North American release and subsequent <laughs> releases are subtitled in those yeah. scenes. Um so there are some people who saw those scenes as just completely impenetrable, inaudible mm-hmm. things. And then there are some who saw it and saw that it was deliberately subtitled over borderline inaudible speech. And it and felt like I did, like it was a deliberate callback to sort of being an earthly version of an experience like the ones that you have in the Red mm-hmm. Room. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I like that. Just don't turn the subtitles on. Lynch didn't want them there. Oh, actually he did. Uh, he just like within a, two weeks time or something changed right. his mind. And they, and they the ones that the prints they struck for American mm-hmm. release had them. Um, the other sort of interesting piece of historical digging that I liked in the forums was um, reader Mike Mariano looked through the 1992 alt.tv.twin peaks Usenet group and found uh, a recap of an advanced Minneapolis screening of Fire Walk With Me where they did screen this over like over three and a half hour long cut and Robert Engels was there and Engels um, answered some Q&A about potential sequels which we alluded to the fact that maybe there were going to be other movies made Mm -hmm. and man does this make me pleased that they did not appear (laughs) um (laughs) so this was from a 1992 usenet forum post basically which says uh angle said there will be another movie and that it will be post series assuming firewalk with me does well enough he said it already um, and the movie has already pulled a profit in japan (laughs) so um and love twin peaks yeah uh let's see it sounded very much uh grounded in what cast members would be available he's angles said that they had to try and get one of the four people who knew what was going on man this is disastrous to me <laughs> cooper uh wyndham earl parentheses or however you spell his name major briggs or somebody else sorry folks i've forgotten anyway the point is this it really matters more who has time to make a movie than what david lynch wants to do yikes oh man uh, he hoped that they would be able to do something with david bowie's character all the way he mentioned it it sounded like it would be kind of a last resort if all the people that they uh, want fell through it sounds like cooper will not be doing the sequel which has an estimated time of commencement in a couple of years robert and david will be doing some other project next and they don't plan on doing on on, uh, thinking about the next Twin Peaks until that project is out of the way. Me, I just can't wait for the Laserdisc and the sequel, says 1982 Forum Guy. (laughs) And then uh, Mike Mariano says, correctly, it is crazy to think about a Cooperless sequel to Twin Peaks that would just be following David Bowie around. That is is accurate. (laughs) Um, What a crazy headspace to be in as that guy. Like, let's just whatever cast member we can get to be a lead in the new Twin Peaks movie is going to be what it is. Like, what a bad motivation to, like... Yeah, no kidding. It's... I know that was now decades ago, but it makes me both very happy that David Lynch is fighting to do Twin Peaks on his terms, but also it makes me weirded out that that was even a thing that he was considering with the writer of this film yeah. uh, in 1992. So, yep. like, those two things seem diametrically opposed, unless what David Lynch wants is a story where Wyndham Earl and David Bowie wander around. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure is not the case, God, given the Wyndham cast that's Earl. been announced. I know. It's, it's funny. To th- I mean, you know, we, we obviously that character is... Uh, really important you know it technically in the in the last third or so of twin peaks and it's it's weird to think that of course yeah from that guy's perspective he is well, one of the main you've been yeah guys, from but, oh from like peyton and angles but i already have like forgotten about him again i'm already i'm already not thinking about Wyndham Earl. Well, it's that's also it just if you if you're living in twin peaks as the week to week as a week to week viewer over the two years that it's on tv i mean yeah. also we lived True. we lived in the world of Wyndham earl for yeah. months and yeah. you're right that i have forgotten him but i also have the benefit of two decades of hindsight that have distilled him mm-hmm. out of what is sort of considered the yeah. essential things in no, twin peaks it, that's, that's very true um um, I'm going to read another email here that uh, we've gotten a couple emails to this effect, and I think they're fair. And I, it's a, it's a, I think it's a criticism of our podcast that is worth airing. Um, John Halski writes, "Hey guys, just got through the last episode, and I've loved the whole ride with you guys. I just introduced my wife to the show and did a full front to back rewatch with her, so it was great getting your perspectives. One bone to pick: the degree to which you dismiss the Black Lodge lore reached a point of distraction. There's a mean drinking game to be played with every time you say, I don't get it, I don't care, or fart noise. The subjective aspect <laughs> is one thing." The Owl Cave nonsense is not Twin Peaks' finest moment, um, though I have to get, say it has to get in line behind James's road trip, Nadine and Ben's identity crises, Josie's everything, and Donna's pointless discovery about her parentage. Subjectivity aside, by refusing to deal with the Black Lodge elements on a narrative level, I think you do a disservice to the, in, in the analysis. I was saddened each time you hand-waved, wishing it was never mentioned, and moved on. By failing to consider Bob, the midget, and the giant as characters in their own right, 
You basically have to enjoy, ignore large chunks of the narrative, none less so than in Fire Walk With Me, my favorite iteration of Twin Peaks. I won't say it's coherent or understandable, and anyone who says otherwise is almost certainly just plugging in their own fanfic, but I also think it, it don't ha- doesn't have to be interpreted as garbage about demonic possession. There's something going on here about human perception and projection, the stories we tell to understand the inexplicable, whether it's told through Native Amer- American mythology or space alien messages from space, and the stunted dialogue between the mundane and the eternal. It can be a fascinating discussion in its own right, but if it's cut off at the knees, but it's cut off at the knees when you decline to engage with the narrative and conclude it's unimportant. I see Bob as a manifestation of rage and lust and also an aspect of Leland. I think Cooper was wrong to absolve Leland of guilt, a moment of weakness on Cooper's part if done for compassionate reasons, and he ultimately fails in the Black Lodge, where doppelganger Leland mocks him for pretending like Leland wasn't really the murderer because Cooper refuses to accept the duality of a good father also being a rapist. I believe Mike and the midget broke his relationship with Madge with Bob because the balance, the perfect circle of appetite satisfaction, was broken when Bob, through Leland's weakness, overindulged in destruction. That might all be bullshit, but it's at least a read on the show that deals with the whole picture. All in all, I don't think you can understand either the Twin Peaks main narrative or the Black Lodge lore fully, except in tandem. Still got to say, though, love the podcast, John. Um, yeah, I think that's a fair point. One thing I will say in response to it is that I'm not so much dismissive of the material so much as I am, like, attempts to plug it into a complete, like, one-to-one read. I actually really love the all the the mater- filmed material that takes place in the Black Lodge. Um, I guess my or Red preferred, Room or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Re- whatever it is. But my preferred mode, I guess, of experiencing that stuff is more, like, um, ambiguous and fleeting and experiential. But I, but I do, I do totally cop to the fact that we probably, on numerous occasions, were overly dismissive of attempts to kind of deconstruct that stuff beyond that level. Um, and I, I think there are probably a number of listeners who felt that way. Yeah, it, it is also, I mean, for me, part of the reason that I dismissed it so much in the middle of the show is because the way that the middle of the show handled that stuff was so much harder for me to get on board with personally. But when we got into the last episode of the show and Fire Walk With Me, I was I was a lot more willing to engage with all of the sort of weirder stuff, not because it was weird, because it just felt like there was more meaning there for me, but I I also entirely understand that, and it is the criticism that we probably get the most on our yeah. podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so totally fair. So I'm glad, and there there are a couple other emails to that effect, and um, uh, there was also um, uh, Daniel who goes by steals this corn on the forum uh, wrote in an email about Garmin Bosia, the um, which is represented by that kind of creamed corn stuff, um, and I'm, I'll go I'll kind of paraphrase this email, I guess I'm not going to read the entire thing because we're we're probably getting a little long here, but. He writes, hey, Chris and Jake, in your Fire Walk With Me episode, you didn't seem too hot on Garmin Bosia's presence in the film. I wanted to defend it from a writing standpoint, because after the series doubled down on the fact that the Red Room isn't just Cooper's dream subconscious, but really is another dimension, and Bob isn't just a metaphor for incest, uh, but an actual timeless spiritual parasitic entity with his own history and motivations, I think we needed some way to explain what the point was for Mike and Bob and their killing together. Garmin Bosia, pain and suffering, disgustingly represented by creamed corn, pays off the ideas that these entities feed off of human suffering and negative emotions. Twin Peaks always had elements of a Lovecraftian cosmic horror story, so I think it's a, this tiny nugget of explanation, enhancing the film rather than detracting, like some of the garbage lore of late season two, like Project Blue Book and Owl Cave. It's also got some of that vampire myth in it, which Mark Frost had compared Bob to in comments he made during the show's run. Uh, he says, do you find it odd that Mike in the film directly confronts Leland as Bob's host at the traffic stop and at the train car, and yet in the series, which chronologically takes place after, acts like he doesn't know exactly who Bob is with anymore? This has bothered me for a while, because in the series, we were left with the impression that Mike was genuinely repentant and helpful. But after seeing the film, he seems to already know about Leland, seems to just care about getting that ring to Laura, rather than about her being killed, and even still eats pain and sorrow, which can't be what a good spirit should be eating. Plus, at the end, he goes back to the Red Room and orders Bob around like he's in charge of him again. Thanks for the podcast. It's been an enjoyable listening experience, Daniel. As yeah. far as far as Mike, I've always sort of my read has been that Gerard just sort of goes into a fugue state sometimes yeah, and has no too. and has no memory. But I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, I feel um, like you know, we, when but, we see him in Fire Walk with me, he's almost in, he's basically entirely in in his like. But on the same on on that hand, you it's probably fair to to say that you can't just excuse Mike as going in and out of a complete fugue state and then say Leland does not do that. Yeah, I mean that's true. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think that the, I think that especially like after Fire Walk with Me, I think that the, it is, I think it is at least to me, it's pretty clear that those lines are very blurry in a way that the show never quite yep. acknowledges, but the movie really hammers home. And 
the the Garmin Bozia stuff as uh, as written by Steel This Corn just now in this email that like seeing it in light of basically like Greek myth or something I guess is fair and is not really a way that I've considered it because even though the like even though Mike and Bob and the man from another place and all of the and the Tremonts or whatever it, even though their extended presence in the show and Firewalk with Me does push them farther into being literal characters than being just metaphors or embodiments of aspects of humanity or whatever. I still always like just my preference, I guess, as a person who's consumes things like this is for that stuff to remain more allegorical and representative and not for them to become real characters. But I guess at a certain point you, it's, it's understandable that that's what they're doing. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, well, so, it's just not the part that interests me personally in the no, story, I, I guess. I, I agree. And I guess the way that I I guess the way that I square it is that in the context of this like parallel world, those I those characters I think are justifiable characters in their own right. But I still but the the world itself I see as some kind of like metaphorical or representational parallel. You know what I mean? So like that that whole system, the whole like black lodge, red room, you know, whatever whatever you it's all you know, considered to be, um, I, you know, I, I think within that you can interpret, um, these different characters as having their own motivations and kind of agency, so to speak. But, but to me, that's still like a subset of that entire thing existing as a way of grappling with human themes. And like, like the specific things that happen in there, do you think still manifest themselves as like shifting tides in the people of Twin Peaks or humanity or a single yeah, person? And same, it's not you know, a, the, as much as it's also just literal people. Right. In the same way that like, again, as you say with Greek myth, like the reason Greek myth still feels relevant to us now is not because we literally think Zeus was like transforming into animals and fucking with people, but because in, in the aggregate, that whole world of Olympus was saying something about human nature and human desires and duplicity and knowledge and aspirations and and all these other things, right? Like you can still tell stories about those characters in which those gods are characters that do their own things, but like the entire thing is most useful to illuminate human. uh, Right. So, so I guess, yeah, all, all of the things that are happening in the red room with those characters is interesting, but I also don't particularly care about the motivations of Bob or Mike or whatever, as much as I care about how, when those forces collide off of each other, what that means for the Palmer family and Cooper and whatever yeah, else, and yeah, how the, and how their lives and trajectories are impacted or influenced by mm-hmm. those. And and the other the other uh, reason that that is kind of how I receive this stuff is because I don't think you can take that. I don't think you can separate that from the fact that Lynch really is. I I think, and I know that there's a lot of discussion about this from really smart people on the forums, including people who have really exhaustive knowledge of, of Lynch's kind of film corpus, which is great. But I, I still really see Lynch as a very intuitive filmmaker and someone who is very invested in dream logic over um, kind of a, uh, like the primacy of kind of dream logic and intuition over direct symbolism. And, and I, don't, I don't know what's going on in his brain, so I could be totally wrong about that. But there is something about the usage of just like film Im- imagery for its own sake that some filmmakers really get a lot of mileage out of. And I think Lynch is one of them. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, to some extent, I actually, I just enjoy the experience of letting that stuff wash over me and just sort of the experience of how he chooses colors and framing and composition and all these things, like just unto itself. You know, I I think the place that that gets muddled in the conversation about Lynch is because that, what you're saying as being sort of an intuitive filmmaker and sort of just doing what feels right, I think when used in that in its most sort of negative or like pejorative form is, oh, he's just making stuff up, which is not, I think, what David Lynch is doing because yeah, even though... That's I, not even what I mean. I know, I know. Because he, he, there is a ton of in, intuition in his work, but there's also a, a very, very, very strong consistency and a very long memory in his work, the way that you get mm-hmm. from an incredibly meticulous plot-focused director. Like, Lynch does not let things drop over the course of Twin Peaks, even, yeah, though, totally true. even though the place that he's coming from is very different from the place of, like, a plot and lore-driven show like Lost. Like, Lost doesn't let things drop, but it doesn't let things drop because it feels like they're all part of an elaborate clockwork machine, whereas Lynch doesn't let things drop, I think, just because he cares and because, well, and he's because the, he has the, the same lens consistently. Yeah, you get the sense that there's something nagging at his subconscious. Like, it's almost it's it's a difference in, like, 
you, you can use the word sort of like obsessive or something, but it means a totally different thing. There's like the OCD obsession that is lost like, right? Where it's like everything is meticulous and must fit into a groove that is its, its exact size. And if we fail to do that, we have failed the promise of the show. Right. Then there's the Lynch version of obsession, which is that there's the, like this thematic thing or image that is like nagging inside like some recess in your brain that causes a like much vaguer recurrence that mm-hmm. feels very consistent, but you can't really say how and like in what, what it means. And like that I find very compelling. Um, yep. Well, and this is a, this is an almost dumb thing to say, but the other thing to to remember that I think is sometimes forgotten or not considered, or is I maybe, maybe this is also so obvious that it, as it should go instead, but Lynch is a film director by trade. And your job as a film director is to, create and maintain a coherent vision for something. So even though he does sort of fly through things on what very much feels like intuition or is given strange of the moment feedback, like the angels injection into the story. And then, but, but you know, like just the reason that he is a working film director who has been a working film director for decades and decades and decades is because he has the sort of brain that can take all of these inputs and, Coherent, like synthesize them and coherently put them out into a film or into even a long term or long form work like Twin Peaks. And even if there are flights of fancy that that come to him or like, oh, or just a feeling that we need to be showing this and not the thing that we thought we were going to be filming. This is what Mm -hmm. it's actually about. He doesn't let any of those things go. I, I don't know. I. It just the way that he works yeah, is so no, I, it's just I, I so agree. different than than mm-hmm. a lot of other people and it's yeah and it, it 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 actually kind of this all this stuff I think puts Twin Peaks and I think anyone would agree with this right I think this is like maybe the most obvious thing to say about Twin Peaks especially looking back um, but it's relevant to all these emails and this discussion we're having is that it puts Twin Peaks in a very very unique position in the work of Lynch which is you know which is why it's not just Lynch it's Lynch and Frost and also these other people. Um, which is that you get both things, right? Like you get the, cause I mean, Lynch has made like straight films, so to speak, you know, well, I mean the straight story and like the elephant man, those are like conventional stories. Um, and you know, he's also made inland empire, which is like all of the sort of least easily readable stuff you see in something like Mulholland Drive or twin peaks, but just like that for the entire movie. Right. Um, and, and you know, twin peaks is a really weird intersection of like the most conventional forms of straightforward storytelling and also this uh, sort of much more like just thematic exploration. And then, and the, the way that stuff overlaps, I think people who, who love twin peaks, they can love it for very different reasons and fall on very different points on the spectrum of like how much of like how to interpret that stuff. And it's not necessarily obvious. And I think when we talk about the way that we interpret this stuff, you know, Jake, you and I are, I think relatively similar in how, in the in the the framework we use to interpret that stuff, but it's definitely not the only way, and I think that it probably has a lot to do with just like how you and I would interpret other works by someone like Lynch, or just how we receive films in general. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, it that's probably one of the reasons this show has had so much staying power is that it is such an unusual collision of those things. Yep, uh, there isn't really another TV show I think that is quite that, although a lot have tried. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, on that note, this is, this, that wraps up, I guess, our, uh, fire walk with me, missing pieces and reader feedback episode next week. We're going to be, um, reading more general, uh, listener feedback from just twin peaks as a whole. If you have any other kind of, uh, cleanup things that you think we didn't address or you have other theories or other, uh, comments about anything we've talked about or other twin peaks material generally, um, you can write in, uh, please in fact, write in to twin peaks at idlethumbs.net. Um, we will obviously also put up a forum discussion post uh, thread about this episode. Um, and do you want to, Jake, do we want to talk about other kind of just homework? We mentioned that. Do we have a, do we have a list of homework? We didn't really assemble one. So I think actually what we're going to do, you know, this is a little different than how we said we we're going to do this last week, but I think what we're going to do instead of having sort of a watch list for uh, a watch list or reading list for you, the listeners, instead, what we're going to do is just invite uh, all of you to write in with your favorite sort of supplemental Twin Peaks material, whether that's like the the goofy coffee commercials in Japan or the episode of Psych featuring the Twin Peaks cast or, you know, the European pilot um, 
which is the weird sort of like TV movie that that uh, they they put it together. It has its own alternate version of Mike and Bob and yeah, all that yeah. stuff. Um, um, so if, if you just have any of that stuff that you like or you have an interpretation on or you just think it's funny, um, write in and we will read your emails about that stuff. And then uh, to the extent that the stuff is publicly available, we will include links to it in the forum thread next week. And then you can – and uh, this also applies to like if you have stuff to say about – uh, the diary of Laura Palmer, the autobiography, autobiography yep. of Dale Cooper, anything like that. And we'll do our best to watch uh, a bunch of this stuff in this coming week. But it's the way that I'm sort of thinking of it now is that if next week's episode is the last week that we're doing of Twin Peaks rewatch until the new show comes on, we can all just work together to generate a bunch of Twin Peaks ephemera that everyone can watch after the show's off the air. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So write us at Twin Peaks at idlethumbs.net with anything that you found interesting in sort of the weird world of twin peaks post post twin peaks or pre twin peaks ephemera uh and what's interesting about it to you and we'll talk about that next week as well as anyone's closing thoughts about twin peaks as a series twin peaks rewatch or things to look forward to in 2016 Mm -hmm. Uh, see you guys next week for the final episode until 18 more episodes (laughs) unless we pop up with some kind of weird supplemental thing yes thanks for listening yeah thanks guys